0: I'll tell you, Gorilla, I don't know who's a bigger egomaniac. Mr. Wonderful or Hulk Hogan. Well, I don't think either one of them are egomaniacs. I think that they're
1: giving the fans what they want to see. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world.
2: Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation.
0: Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience.
3: everyone, and welcome to episode 62 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, after a one-week break, I did a Best of the Heel Turns Volume 1 show. And yeah, someday there might be a Volume 2 as there's enough heel turns to fill out another show. Today, we're looking at WWF All-Star Wrestling, so the B-Show, from August 31st, 1985, And this is actually the second WWF show that I've covered from the month of August of that year. So I did TNT, Tuesday Night Titans, even though it aired on Friday nights by that point, so that's why you had to call it TNT, back in episode 30, which I've said in the past on a couple of occasions is my favorite episode that I've ever done. And part of that had to do with the Terry Funk segment with Tony Gurria and the barroom brawl that ensued and, and Tony Terry Funk is actually on the show Tony Gurria is not uh, yes yeah, so we had the week off last week where I threw together the show with the Larry Zbysko Andre the Giant and Shawn Michaels heel turns which to be honest, I don't know if I mentioned this in the course of that show and the wraparounds that I recorded, but I rolled over in bed on Tuesday morning and I said, huh, I should just throw something together real quick because, you know, it, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. And also I know that most people who became introduced to this show came in around episode 16 anyway because that was when I ended up on the pro wrestling only feed so the first 15 episodes you find only on my feed because it was before i joined and i don't know it's kind of a different show than especially in the first five episodes you'll notice how how very mellow i am at certain points and i'm not going off on as many riffs on certain things although the segments that i'm taking there are more focused on the actual heel turn so i'm going to try to keep my eyes on the prize there and speaking of that let me just get in the plugs real quick you can email the show greetings from allentown at gmail.com your feedback is very happily accepted both positive and negative facebook.com slash greetings from allentown twitter at GF Allentown Pod. Give me a follow there. Speaking of feedback, leave a review on iTunes, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell they're calling it this week. Five stars, certainly appreciated by me. And also leave a review for the Pro Wrestling Only feed. There are a lot of great shows on the network, uh, some of which have come on board more recently. There's content out there all the time now. So <laughs> do give that a subscription as well so you don't miss any of that. And you are probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. In association with Place B Nation, go to placebenation.com slash to make your Amazon purchases where a portion of it will be kicked back to help place to be with site costs. And that reminds me, I, I need to pick up, uh, I did a thing, I was making chicken wings tonight. My wife flew to Washington, D.C. earlier today. So I made chicken wings and I used my usual salt lick rub that is my favorite rub personally for chicken wings. I, li- I like to grill them and you know you, you use the salt Lake rub on them it's very good I've also had the salt Lake garlic rub which was actually sent to me by accident via Amazon <laughs> they sent me the garlic rub uh, from salt lick one time and I like that quite a bit on my chicken wings as well so Hopefully, uh, maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll go on there now and take a peek. As my cat is yelling in the background here, stop distracting me. <laughs> and you thought I was just making that stuff up about recording in front of a live studio audience? So they they are most certainly here. Yeah, last week, a very tough week. After I put the show to bed, I get the news that Bruno Sammartino had passed away, and the guys from Worldcast put out a tribute show. To Bruno that as I'm recording this I have not listened to it yet but given the Bruno content that they did on the Titans of Wrestling was all excellent stuff I'm going to give that just a blind recommend in fact I'm probably going to listen to it before I go to bed this evening but we also lost Paul Jones on the same day as well number one Paul Jones the leader of Paul Jones's army in 1980s Jim Crockett promotions. So, I guess uh, I guess that means Jimmy Valiant outlasted him. But yeah, kind of a rough week. And then we had Barbara Bush passing away as well. So uh, you know, just a lot going on after Harry Anderson. But like I always say. We have a lot more kind of celebrity figures now, so you're going to have more celebrity deaths. People were all up, you know, whatever, in 2016. Oh, David Bowie. Oh, Prince. They passed away. Well, you know, these things are going to happen because people who were popular in the 70s and 80s are getting older. And speaking of David Bowie, I believe that's modern love that is the basis of the all-star wrestling theme Which I I did a little editing on because it does start with Howard Finkel announcing Hulk Hogan as the new World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion at Madison Square Garden. And then they show a really ugly woman cheering in the crowd as they kind of go to a montage thing where they show Madison Square Garden. Philadelphia Spectrum, and then it says Boston Gardens, which drives me insane, as I've said, because it's the Wahoo McDaniels disease, it's not plural, don't pluralize it, there's not more than one, and that was the intro for All-Star Wrestling, from from 84 up through 86, some of the summer of 86 All-Star Wrestlings, I have not seen very much of those, During the period when Jesse Ventura had left the WWF to go make Predator, and they had various special guests alongside Gorilla. I haven't seen too many of those shows. I know that there was one in the late summer where Jake the Snake Roberts was doing color alongside Gorilla. Gorilla and Jesse were the team on All-Star from the end of July of 85, so it's pretty fresh. I mean, they had done Wrestlemania together, which is an interesting broadcast when you look at it. You get Jesse calling Gorilla Gino during much of the show. Jesse was still very new to the broadcasting game as well. Gorilla was a couple of years in, and i said Gorilla in like 82 and 83, not very good at the broadcast table, just my honest opinion there. So they're still finding their way at this time and I had yet to do a show with those two guys obviously I've done plenty of shows with Jesse Ventura and plenty of shows with Gorilla Monsoon on Wrestling Challenge but the two of them together not so much because they're mostly known for their time doing pay-per-views together because they were not on weekly TV after Jesse came back in late 1986 because Jesse's on Superstars Gorilla's on Challenge and they would only really ever meet up on pay-per-view shows so they're still finding their way but the product and I've said, I have said this back in episode 30 I really do enjoy what's going on in late 85 because everything seems a lot more fresh with guys like Savage coming in Terry Funk being there Ricky Steamboat having come in shortly before Wrestlemania and then you got rid of some of the deadwood like Jimmy Snuka whose time was really up you know, with all of his problems, he was certainly more trouble than he was worth by mid 85. So, having these new names come in, and, and not all of them would work. I mean, you know, Corporal Kirshner would have his day, but can't win them all, I guess. And Terry Funk, as I said, is on this show facing an enhancement talent. Savage is actually in the feature bout against Rick McGraw, a guy who wouldn't even see the end of 1985 because he would pass away in November. In the middle of an angle with Roddy Piper. So things just seem a lot more interesting to me here than they did in the build up to the first WrestleMania, which obviously was a big win for them because nothing was ever the same going forward. There were certain struggles leading up to the first WrestleMania. If you flash back a year before this, in August of 84, they're just bringing in guys like crazy. Junkyard dog bringing Ken Patera back from the AWA, and they're just kind of signing guys without any real, you know, rhyme or reason, just kind of to fill out shows because they're running shows in all areas with no real organization or plan yet. These, well, we got to do a show in Edmonton because we bought out Stu Hart, and we we're going to stiff him on any payments, so we got to do that. And it, it seemed a little disorganized. Now it seems they've hit their stride they know what they're doing they got everything a little bit better organized they don't have a show Georgia Championship Wrestling on TBS anymore they sold that time slot back because Jim Crockett was stupid enough to actually pay them a million dollars when they were probably fairly desperate to get out of it and also desperately needed that million dollars as well (laughs) given some of the cash flow issues that as I understand it that they had in late 84 and leading up to Wrestlemania I'm not so sure that the place would have gone under had Wrestlemania not worked out as well as it did but I think things might have been you know, down a little bit sort of like in 94 and 95 when you saw the Raws and they retreated to the northeast and they played smaller venues so this show here was taped on August 5th in Brantford, Ontario so just like the Maple Leaf Wrestling show that I did several weeks ago it kind of repurposed All-Star into Maple Leaf Wrestling but this is you know the American edition All-Star and of course it would air August 31st as I said which is an interesting date in World Wrestling Federation history because that was the date of the first show the WWF ever ran at the Rosemont Horizon which is now the all-state arena just north of chicago i always think of rosemont as not really like part of chicago i think of it as that stop on the blue line when you get on the cta or whatever in chicago there's o'hare at the very top and then the next stop is rosemont and when you look out the train you can see the all-state arena and they loaded up that show for, for the Chicagoland area. As Hulk Hogan beat Nikolai Volkov in a world title match, Tito Santana defeated the Missing Link, defending his newly won Intercontinental title, Hart Foundation over the British Bulldogs, and Wendy Richter defended the Women's Championship over the Spider Lady. Or she wouldn't see the end of 1985 either as there's a much more famous wendy richter spider lady match that would take place in november at madison square garden so as i go into this show i'm just hoping that you know i tape these in segments generally over a couple of days and i'm hoping that i don't have my patented Playoff mood swings that I generally have around the Stanley Cup playoffs. Not as much with the NBA playoffs, because even if I was a huge Boston Celtics fan and really, really into it, I can see that they have about six players injured. So, yes, I will understand if they lose to the Milwaukee Bucks or if they get by that, if they lose to the 76ers in the next round. I, I get it. But, you know, I, I get a little stressed around this time of year and I think I've pointed this out on the podcast before, is there's only one time that I was ever late on a show that didn't release on late Wednesday night or Thursday morning. It was episode 10 on WWF Action Zone, and I remember recording that on the Friday while watching a Bruins playoff game that was in overtime as I'm recording it so I'm staring at the TV and talking I don't remember a damn thing that I said in the last 10-15 minutes of that show and I remember I rushed to get it posted before midnight on Saturday so nice little Easter egg for you to go back and look at so on this episode of All-Star Wrestling as I mentioned Terry Funk Randy Savage versus Rick McGraw oh god Uncle Elmer makes another he rears his ugly head Once again, Although I did get a nice little anecdote about him from something that I read somewhere. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff will kick things off. And the Junkyard Dog and Ricky Steamboat team up in something that they would often do at this time. Just kind of take two popular baby faces, throw them together on television just so you can get them out there. Particularly with Junkyard Dog because his singles stuff, you know... having another guy out there to do things you know might elevate both guys in the end and then finally there is an all-jobber tag team match that is certainly one for the ages and is kind of funny to look back on although maybe you could consider a couple of the guys in the match jobbers to the stars quote unquote and then one of the reasons why i picked this show is we have commercials and not only are these commercials from the time in 1985 there are some real interesting ones including what you could almost consider a quasi-invasion angle going on and also most of the footage that you find on YouTube especially of WWF programming is taped off New York television I especially like the ones that are taped off Channel 9 in New York where the uploader has left in the WOR station identification thing at the top. And yes, I appreciate that quite a bit. I, I, I just let anybody who's going to upload wrestling footage to YouTube know that I appreciate stuff like that and original commercials because this one here is from Jackson, Tennessee a place that I've actually been to, Jackson. I stayed a week there one night. (laughs) That was when I was a Red Sox fan. It happened to be the first game of the 2003 American League Championship Series against the Yankees that night. And I went into a bar, and I don't know if I was having dinner or whatever, but the guy was like, why don't you stick around for the baseball game? And I said, nah, nah, I don't think you'll want me here for that because, you know, as I said, I get a little too intense with playoff sports baseball hockey or whatever in general so to take my mind off that stuff i'm going to watch professional wrestling so let's just dive right into it And, of course, is the reason why the George Michael song Freedom 90, that's why he had to put a 90 on it, because when he was with Wham! and Andrew Ridgely, they also did a song called Freedom, so you got to differentiate the two songs in the catalog that was on the charts this week in 1985. And speaking of freedom, we got Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who had declared his freedom from the tyranny of Bobby the Brain Heenan, who had placed... $25,000 bounty on his head and, and the talk was all the rage anything to do with Orndorff the bounty was going to be brought up and this went on for months and months all the way up I remember when I did the show on Championship Wrestling November of 1985 it was still being brought up at that time mention of it on the TNT where he was a guest with uh, Vince McMahon he's taking on AJ Petruzzi the third greatest AJ in WWE history, as it turns out, hailing from Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has a lot of interesting place names, between Punxsutawney, Conshohocken. You know, the list goes on and on. And the story of Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, has to do with not necessarily a good-hearted tribute to Jim Thorpe, although he did grow up kind of near there. He was a student at a school in nearby Carlisle, Pennsylvania, although nearby, it depends what you mean by that. It was, I guess, 100 miles southwest of current Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. And here's the story on that. Following his death, Thorpe's widow and third wife, Patricia, was mad at the state of Oklahoma because they wouldn't erect a memorial to Jim Thorpe. And she had heard that the boroughs of Mock Chunk and East Mock Chunk in Pennsylvania we're trying to attract business. So she made a deal basically, you know, for money, naming the town in honor of Jim Thorpe. And then his remains were transferred there and his tomb and everything is in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. So, yes, that and that is the actual hometown of A.J. Petruzzi, which I feel is a more relevant fact than the fact that he trained Snitsky so feel free to blame AJ Pertruzzi for that one and Orndorff the, here's the crazy thing about him he often gets said oh he was miscast as a babyface but let's break this down here he got big cheers as a babyface for that one year before he would turn on Hogan in the summer of 86 and he would also get loud boos as a heel as well because he knew how to play into that it may seem that oh he was miscast because he maybe is more natural as a heel but I think, uh, until there was, there was a certain point in the spring of 86 where he was a little bit lost because he ends up facing Magnificent Morocco in a totally meaningless match on the worst part of WrestleMania two, the Nassau Coliseum part, the first third of that show. So he wasn't in a good place then. And I think a lot of people downgrade Orndorff's babyface run just on the basis of that. I mean should think more is stuff with Piper and the brawls that those two had in the summer and into the fall of 1985 and the name of the game in professional wrestling is to remain relevant with the fans in the public and Orndorff during his entire run from late 83 all the way up to late 1987 he was always in the conversation in some way so that on those grounds I defend Orndorff's babyface run and also the fact that you have to turn him babyface so that you can have him turn heel on Hulk Hogan and set up one of the biggest money house show programs that they would have in the 1980s petruzzi actually gets an edge very early in this match with an eye rake but then he misses a charge and Orndorf starts working the left leg but very aggressively you know this certain heelish tendencies in what he's doing goes up top drops a knee on aj's leg and then slaps on a half crab i don't really remember paul orndorff doing the half crab a lot and petruzzi taps but it's 1985, so that doesn't matter for anyone's purposes. And we've got to stretch this match out a little bit. This is not the NWA. We're not doing 40-second squash matches and then doing a promo. So one thing, you know, don't, don't call me a WWF toady or anything like that. I appreciate all kinds of wrestling I've done several different promotions in fact I'm doing a new promotion next week which I will reveal at the end of the show that I have not covered as of yet but just the way that they would do their programming where we're going to accomplish two things at once we're going to have Orndorff showcase on TV here but he's got to go three minutes four minutes or so because we're going to have Captain Lou Albano join the broadcast booth here and at this time in 1985 they are campaigning, all the managers, for the Manager of the Year. A giant scam for people to send postcards or whatever to the WWF offices so that, coincidentally, they could put them on a mailing list just in time for Christmas coming up. What what a coincidence, which answers the question of why the hell would you have your Manager of the Year award be awarded in... Well, not August because we're at the last day of August, but in either September or October. I mean, there's still time left in the year. So Albano joins the commentary table and in his own unique way makes... His case.
4: Well I want to thank you very much Gorilla Monsoon, uh, I'm out here first of all to thank the many many fans and the people that support the voting for the manager of the year and I feel very elated, very proud, very fine to have all the children, the adults, all the people behind me. Uh, once again, I'd like to say I hear, I hear I'm in the forerunning, I hope it continues that way, it's a very prestigious contest. Uh, I'd love to win. I don't know if I will, but there's very, very other capable uh, fellas in there, Monsoon. You know, you've got Freddie Blassie, you've got Jimmy Hart, uh, you've got Bobby Heenan, you've got so many, you've got Big Jim, Hillbilly Jim. I'm going to vote myself personally for Hillbilly Jim.
3: Now, I'm not a politician, but I don't think it's the greatest thing, if you want to win Manager of the Year, to come out and give a 40-second, rambling, incoherent address where at the end you say that you're going to vote for one of your opponents in the balloting. Really kind of makes no sense. And Lou Albano is really just kind of a, he's a real bother as a babyface. Like uh, the annoying things that he would do backstage to piss off Vince Jr. are kind of coming through on camera in his babyface persona, at least to me. Although I did find my Captain Lou Albano LJN figure at my mother's house about a week and a half ago. I posted it on the Twitter, and maybe I'll get around to retweeting that again after this show post. I also found my Freddie Blassie one, but <laughs> could not find the cane that I believe came with it. What? what cane? What are you talking about? So this made me think, there's a lot of managers back in 85... Who would be the cave, like let's who is the real manager of the year? Obviously a babyface is gonna win this because it's a fan vote, just like the useless Arnold Skoland won Manager of the Year in nineteen seventy seven. As the Grand Wizard was just friggin' robbed in that. Maybe I'll get to one of the episodes from seventy seven where Wizard gives a three minute, very coherent speech making his case for it. We have seven candidates for this manager of the year in 85? Bobby Heenan. He's down a little bit more in 85 than what you'd think of. He had that weird missing link period before he traded him and Adonis away for King Kong Bundy in the fall of that year. But I don't think he was certainly the best performing manager of that year. Albano had the tag team champions in the U.S. Express. And they'd won it twice during the course of the year. So I guess that would be his candidacy. Johnny V had tag team champions of his own. But uh, more on that in a little bit. Jimmy Hart didn't come in until just before WrestleMania. But in that time, he's managing the Intercontinental Champion here. He gains the services of greg the hammer valentine before valentine makes his way over to the dream team with valiant which is kind of one of those things that was never really explained to me how jimmy hart lost greg valentine i mean maybe there was an angle on 85 tv that i just missed Freddie Blassie, his case is predicated on having volkoff and Sheik, the tag team champions having won the title at wrestlemania fuji is it you know oh he has morocco but morocco wasn't even on wrestlemania and i don't think you can really make a case based on him challenging for the world title and then the last candidate is hillbilly jim who gave us uncle elmer and another person who's going to be rolled out later in the show so i think that those are all negatives to me i would vote for jimmy hart actually but even though he's got an abbreviated season so they say that Albano is in the top three in the balloting so far. So it' very nice of Paul Orndorff to work the leg, as I was talking about, to allow Lou to make his incredibly bad speech then he lands a back suplex a knee drop and he's starting to get a sign from the fans to give the pile driver they're all making the sign which thank god the fans didn't start making the sign for the pile driver 40 seconds into the match because they allowed things to breathe and other things to happen and Orndorff Gets the guy up, Petruzzi and he faces the hard camera. He doesn't need the referee to tell him where the hard camera is. He does not need to spend two and a half years in NXT learning how to work WWE style or anything because that's not how things were done there. You you wrestled the way you wrestled, and it was good enough. I don't mean to you know start shaking my fist and telling people to get off my lawn. He lands the pile driver, gets the one, two, three. This is where Jesse gets in his shot at Hogan, talking about egos with Orndorf and Hogan. Although they weren't so closely associated, Hogan and Orndorf. That was something that kind of came up more in the aftermath of WrestleMania 2. And Gorilla Monsoon, this is kind of an interesting thing for him, because usually he would not badmouth anything a babyface did or, or a move. The guy did, unless of course it was a submission hold applied improperly, and then Gorilla's just all over that. But Gorilla here, he he's he's maybe electioneering as well, and he's making a play to be on the Louisiana State Athletic Commission. What a tremendous
0: amount of pressure placed on the neck and the vertebrae in the neck—a pile driver. I don't know, Jess. Uh, In my book, sometimes uh, I think about
3: it being almost an illegal maneuver. I was being facetious, of course. As you recall on WrestleMania weekend this year down in New Orleans, there's a lot of talk about how the Louisiana State Athletic Commission had some rules such as pile drivers being banned and no blood and all that sort of stuff. So I'm just kind of making a reference to that. So Paul Orndorff, again, I make the point. Very popular as a babyface, very unpopular as a heel. And isn't that the name
1: of the game? Promotional consideration paid for by the following.
2: Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes a full archive of the Kevin Kelly show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and... The Pro Wrestling Only Feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. At the
3: update desk, we got Lord Alfred Hayes. And the topic this week is the Magnificent Morocco and Mr. Fuji who had recently attacked Ricky Steamboat during a match on Championship Wrestling that aired on July 20th. And they do show the clip of it and they hang him over the top rope. Hey, I say the heels always going after Ricky Steamboat's neck or throat. Uh, it seemed to be a common theme during the entire run there. And Lord Ale calls Morocco the Prince of Darkness, which kind of struck me as a little odd and maybe a bit harsh. As that is a phrase that is primarily associated with not only Satan— but mainly if you go back for, you know to John Milton's poem epic, Paradise Lost. And when you think of that poem, there's only one reference to John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, that matters.
0: The most intriguing character, as we all know from our reading, was Satan. Now, was Milton trying to tell us that being bad was more fun than being good? Okay. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton.
3: I don't know. There's very little I would find about Don Morocco that is particularly satanic, unless you want to talk about his association with Fuji and maybe some of the ribs that Fuji pulled over the years. But really, we're not going to go that deep into it. The, The clip of hanging Steamboat there, hanging guys over the top rope, Uh, Not something I don't think you could really do today. But no more sympathetic babyface you could do that to than Ricky Steamboat. Because I don't think there's anybody better at selling the effects of some sort of injury angle. Which is why they would go back to that well with him time and again. You have this. You have the DDT on the floor with Jake Roberts. And then he comes back later to get his revenge throw it on the guardrail with savage it's kind of surprising you didn't have him get hit over the head with a guitar by honky-tonk man and do it that way so that steamboat can you know kind of live that playbook again because out of all the guys is like the sympathetic baby face who's down and he's injured he's been you know all that he's really the best one ever at that
1: with rustling superstars, it's like having a real match right in your own home there's Jimmy Superfly Snooker, the Iron Sheik, Hulk Hogan, and Big John Sud. Bust them, group them, fight them like the big guys. There's even Andre the Giant, wrestling superstars. Each sold separately. You from LJN.
3: There are a number of things that are very interesting about that ad for the LJN figures. Let's start with Jimmy Snuka being in it at the top when he had left or was not appearing on WWF shows by this point in August of 1985. But you make a commercial, you have it in the can, fine. You got one guy who's not there anymore. You know, mistakes were made. Just like that NWA video that had three or four guys who had left the promotion. (laughs) The catch the pinfalls one that I alluded to a few shows ago. Iron Sheik comes into the room and at the end of it it's hysterical because stud is fighting hogan behind the couch but in front of the couch the sheik has some unnamed jobber who may or may not be aj petruzzi again i I don't know but he has him in the camel clutch on the floor of the living room which is kind of a funny visual you know in somebody's house it's like oh we can have enhancement matches in your house That's a phrase that maybe they should think of for 10 years down the road for, you know, a pay-per-view stream or something like that. Speaking of which, I was talking to a a guy that I I go to the Bruins games with, and he told me that he saw WrestleMania 1. Live when it happened. I said, oh, you saw it closed circuit at the theater? He's like, no, my friend got it on pay-per-view. And I was like, whoa! I was like, completely blown away by the fact that he saw WrestleMania 1 on pay-per-view, but then he claims to like not know any of the guys in wrestling, so really the conversation was cut off. And also, he's a bit of a peculiar fellow. Anyway, Ad for Schick disposable razors. And let me tell you something, I hate disposable razors. They are pretty bad on the whole and i've only had to use it once in the last decade and it didn't go well for me when i was packing for a trip to both portland and seattle back in 2012 i when i packed my normal gillette razors i packed them so well that i couldn't find them when we got there so i i was like i don't know where my stuff is so i had to go down i bought disposable razors and then i proceeded to blade myself a four alarm blade job i think it was probably about 0.31 on the muda scale if you're looking at because I, I had to like apply pressure to my face with like toilet paper for a good 40 minutes before we could go out to eat so never again with a disposable razor i'll just go scruffy if if that's how it's going to be roll aids and when I saw the AIDS ad here, I thought to myself, you don't really see a lot of AIDS ads these days. I feel like their ad budget was huge in the 80s because they sponsored the Relief Pitcher Award in baseball. You'd see a lot of their spots on base. It felt like everybody in the 80s had heartburn. And then it sort of hit me that something like Prilosec OTC put a lot of those out of business. And you can still take Tums. It's a very... Effective tool to you know for your stomach and all that. And I've spoken for Pepto Bismol, though that's kind of a slightly different thing. And now we got an ad that when I saw this and I picked this show, and I had seen this show before, in fact, I blogged about it at section309.com. So if you notice that if I stole jokes from a blog. Those are actually my own jokes, although I do like to come up with independent material from what I blogged about before. This is a different copy from what I watched on that because I certainly would have remembered this next commercial because... It blew my damn mind because it's Lance Russell on WWF television.
1: Hi, this is Lance Russell, and you talk about excitement. Ooh, that is our specialty. Yes, sir. Every single week, right here on Channel 16, we've got the big action of championship wrestling, and it always features the unexpected. You'll see all kinds of celebration, high flying bodies, slams, and some grueling, grueling physical activity. That's every week twice Saturday, 9 to 10 p.m., Sunday, 12 noon to 1, on channel 16
3: as i said in the intro this is from jackson tennessee so this is in a different territory so it is kind of fun that cwa memphis buys the spot on the show to advertise their own wrestling and they have the very classy debonair lance russell out there of course if it was me doing that ad and i worked for memphis wrestling i I would be pissed that they were invading my territory with their wrestling and i just would have said something like hey you watching this show stop watching this goddamn bullshit and come watch our show airing saturday night blah 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 blah, all the stuff that he said but lance russell has a little bit more class than that (laughs) so he said what he said there And believe it or not, there is one more ad of that sort coming up. There are certain guys that I see on the docket for a show, and I immediately start to dread talking about them again. And Uncle Elmer is certainly one of them. Having placed last among vote-getters in the greatest WWE wrestler ever project at Place to Be Nation. Because I want to say it was Nate Milton gave him a 100th place vote. I think it was. He is taking on Bigfoot. And I am sorry to say that I have no confirmation on who this Bigfoot is. The cage match... Page on this show links it to Rip Morgan but to me that doesn't look like Rip Morgan maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong there there was also some information I got a while back when I did the blog that it was a Bob Harrow a wrestler from Memphis but I don't think that makes a lot of sense either my suspicion is that it's some guy from Canada because that's where they're taping this and I'm not entirely sure who it is but it doesn't really matter because it's an Uncle Elmer match and it's going to be over with in 90 seconds, God willing. This is pre-Don't Go Messing with a Country Boy, so you get a different sort of hillbilly song, which I don't understand why they don't just dub that one in instead of Don't Go Messing with a Country Boy, which they dub over. And I believe the reason why they dub over that is because technically Jesse Ventura is a lyricist on that, Because he and Okerlund and Vince McMahon talk at the end of the track in question where Jesse uh, fakes throwing up somewhere after having heard that. I I, I think that might be why that gets dubbed over because that's been a source of uh, questioning for quite a while in podcast circles. Some fucker, when Jim was walking to the ring, Hillbilly Jim accompanying Uncle Elmer, of course, grabbed Jim's hat. And Jim had to quickly grab it back from him. Like, who would grab Hillbilly Jim's hat? Also, Jim only has, he's got his normal bib overalls on. He's moving around a lot better. His broken leg was six months before. But it must have been a complicated deal fixing up his leg because he's a big man and it must have been a bad injury or something like that because six months out, he's still not back in the ring. And in fact, the overalls only has one of the straps over the shoulder. So he's kind of going with that early 90s look that I seem to recall being popular around the New Kids on the Block time where people would wear like the one overall thing and then the other one would be loose. I forget what that was. Early 90s fashion, a lot of it was just really, really bad. And speaking of bad, Jesse Ventura, who would have one of his shining moments making fun, of Uncle Elmer and his wedding, but that—that's a couple months away. Here, he's just really just sort of horrified at the various smells that these mountain men bring.
0: Why do I smell horses, mules, and donkeys whenever yes. they walk by? Jess, I don't smell that. Jess, and gorillas have an excellent smell. I think this gorilla's got a stuffed-up nose.
3: <laughs> I think if that was a couple of years later, we would have gotten a "Will you stop?" from Gorilla when Jesse said, <laughs> said something like that but they're still a lot more cordial back then they're very they're very nice to each other through the course of the WrestleMania 1 broadcast and so they are on All Star on this particular edition they mentioned how that Hillbilly Jim the the story behind his injury that what actually happened was he slipped on the cement floor chasing after johnny v something like that a house show in san diego i think it was and they're saying well they're going to be after beefcake which you know it's it's now six months (laughs) elmer you know should have gone after him but beefcake is now in a tag team with valentine and he's on to definitely bigger and better things as the dream team so, by the way, Greg Valentine in his 1985 WWF Timeline, which I think is a kayfabe commentaries series that he did, he, he the one thing he said about Uncle Elmer was apparently he sold fake Rolexes to the boys in the back. So, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, but I can't believe that Uncle Elmer would be a con man. I mean, I, I'm just shocked by this. <laughs> just unbelievable i mean what is what is in this for hillbilly jim he's trying like hell to get this stuff over i mean they would always turn to this guy this amiable guy who was always popular with fans even when he wasn't appearing on tv very often later into the 80s to get stuff like when they wanted to debut outback jack as i mentioned in episode four in 1987 who did they bring out they brought out hillbilly jim to be the ring announcer to kind of ensure that oh well we like hillbilly jim so we'll take your word for it and we'll actually cheer this loser from australia who's here uh, jim's kind of dragged down by uncle elmer I, I think there's really no denying it because elmer is just kind of an anchor on literally everything he touches And he is so shitty, even by, like, the standards of 1985 WWF. He can't do anything. Like, there's nothing he can do well. We're going to get a promo with Uncle Elmer later. Could God help me? Two times Uncle Elmer on this show. He can't do anything well. He doesn't check any of the boxes. He, He gets a crappy avalanche in the corner. Then he backs up and does a second crappy avalanche. He has a backdrop... On Bigfoot out of the corner which was piss poor because it looked like one of those things where it looked like Bigfoot was going for a sunset flip and just kind of missed the whole deal that was the kind of backdrop that that looked like and then Uncle Elmer's finishing move of course is the leg drop because God forbid he do anything original it's not even the running leg drop that Hogan does he takes like one step because taking two steps for Uncle Elmer would have been way too much this this dragged Hillbilly Jim so it, it dragged him down as much as they were trying to use Jim to elevate the other guys and maybe it did because they got on the Saturday Night's Main Event in the six man match with Piper, Orton and Ventura on the show that I reviewed a long time ago I think it was episode 29 uh, the Saturday Night's Main Event from January of 1986 and just to prove that Uncle Elmer can't do anything well. Hillbilly Jim, a guy who is nursing a leg injury, comes in after the match, and he's dancing. He's doing the hoedown thing with the injured leg, by the way. And and they they comment, oh, Jim's looking pretty good. Elmer can barely move. He's basically doing like the Antoine Walker wiggle, and he's not even doing that well. He can't move his upper body. He can't move his lower body. There's literally nothing he can do except to serve as fodder for people like me. And Jesse gets in one of the... Out of all the jokes that Jesse Ventura has told over the years, you know, all the wisecracks that he makes... The one he makes about Uncle Elmer, it's something that he would use again, and it's something that's stolen many times over the years.
0: I think Uncle Elmer could go up for most apps
3: <laughs> Yeah, because this is All-Star. We don't have Vince on there laughing up with Storm at the hillbillies dancing or whatever Uncle Elmer would call whatever the hell he's doing. They throw up the address for you to mail your manager of the year. Anybody ever get the WWF catalog in 1985? I should probably look that up to see what it looked like. I think maybe Shane and Stephanie were too young to be modeling the stuff back then. In terms of the merch, I'd love to see what the scene was like back then. See some people with Hulkamania shirts in the crowd, in the front rows, and it doesn't look like that they were handed out for free a la WCW a decade later. They go to the back, Gene Okerlund as some news at the Philadelphia Spectrum a week before, on the 24th. The new dream team of Brutus Beefcake and Greg Valentine had beaten the U.S. Express. And Valentine, in that aforementioned timeline thing there, said that he was put together with Beefcake mainly to teach him how to work, even though he had been a wrestler for five or six years. it, It seems like, well, maybe that does make sense. There's also the theory of... Well, did Hogan lobby for his friend Beefcake to get the tag titles and that Valentine is a credible guy who needed something to do coming off the feud with Tito, so throw him in a tag team for a while? I don't know. It could be any number. It could be a combination of things. And it's really kind of shocking that U.S. Express loses the titles that quickly i had always remembered i had it in my head that barry windham had left immediately after the tag title change but that was not the case he did stick around for another couple of months because he's there when they debut real american as the theme song for the u.s express on an october episode of championship wrestling but then he disappears shortly thereafter So he's out the door, and then you have the whole Dan Spivey thing. Rotundo, they actually disappear. They turn up in the AWA in 86. I believe they appeared at the Wrestle Rock show in April of that year. I'll have to be sure to keep that in mind for a future date. Junkyard Dog is there for the interview, and he... What he is wearing here is rather interesting. I don't know if he's trying to send a message to Vince or whatever, or if he's unhappy, or if he's announcing where he's going to go in three years when he gets fired for basically being unprofessional on the European tour. Uh, He's wearing a giant shirt that says Atlanta in giant 72-point font across the front. And JYD, sometimes his promos wouldn't make a lot of sense, uh, but here, he's commenting on what happened in that tag match. It, as you recall, the finish was a rubbing Johnny V's cigar into the eye of Barry Windham. And Windham would then sell an eye injury for the weeks afterwards. So he comments on that and on issues
4: of God. It was just like on a Friday afternoon right over in the projects when everybody get paid and everybody had to take off for the heels. Barry one, <laughs> and Mike Ritano. It was um Robert, if I ever seen it before. But my main concern right now is that nasty individual from Texas, Terry Funk. Terry nasty Funk. With that branding, I'm, I'm telling you, he poking everybody. I saw what he did to the guy on national television. Slapped the guy around. Now he do all kind of stuff to the camera. Mess with the cameraman. He mess with everybody except the dog. He don't heat that thing up. Does he? Hey, I know the guy. The guy is no good. Something happened several years ago, Mean and Gene, and I thought, I said, well, this thing had laid in the past. But now he is right back again. Follow me, just, just like my shadow. But I already talked to the man up there in the big house, and I told Terry what Fox, what, 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 what man in the big house? One well, you pay your dues to, baby. Oh, the big That's the man, that's the man. And I'm going to tell you one thing, Terry Fox. Don't come around here like a cabbage all here in no real with that poker. I'm no frog. But I'm a dog. And I'll be looking for a piece of your bone with you on. I'm telling you, I don't trust no- It is weird when you
3: think of Terry Funk's run in the WWF in 85 and into 86. The feud with the Junkyard Dog pretty much starts at the beginning and then lasts through the entire thing. And Junkyard Dog, he's so concerned about standing up for Mel Phillips. Which, by the way, I, I read that apparently nobody cared about Mel Phillips' foot thing. Like, none of the boys in the locker room really cared what he was into which is fine I'm glad that they have a kind of libertarian ethic there but it is kind of weird like I don't know if I would go out of my way to be standing up for Mel Phillips when he's into all that sort of weird stuff that feud lasted uh, quite a long time (laughs) you know Terry Funk he beats up Mel Phillips in his debut match in June or it airs in June And he's pretty much paired with Junkyard Dog all the way up to the end. I think Terry's last match is on the May 1986 Saturday Night's main event alongside Dory against Hogan and the Junkyard Dog. So It it just kind of makes me wish that Terry had a different feud than JYD. And granted, that promo had a lot of jive-talking stuff in it, but I actually got all of it. I I actually understood what he was trying to say.
2: Place to Be Nation's JT and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new.
5: Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Purri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics On Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the Hard Traveling Fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek
2: and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts including the Kevin Kelly show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes, and while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others, available on Placemanation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using Placemination.com backslash Amazon when shopping online, and download our free PTB vintage vault refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick Island in Fall River, Massachusetts, the History and Scott Geek's blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. nation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
3: Hey, I only beeped out the Our Vantage Point podcast because they haven't been on the network in quite some time, but I I still like those guys, of course. And, of course, my usual shout-out to the wrestling podcast about nothing, which really kind of is about it's really at this point the brian malonis vanity project featuring mike crockett is really what that podcast i think should be should be called anyway you know give that show a listen as well during the ad break on the show there was an advertisement for money books cash for stuff a book on where you could sell household items and make money on it, a concept that in the internet era is really dated but for those who have forgotten if you go back to the mid 80s and you had stuff lying around the house whether a collectible of any kind you had to actually go out and burn calories in order to make money off that somehow now you can just post it on ebay ebay having been around now for over 20 years but still it's a lot easier to sell your wares. There's any number of different websites we could do it, but back in the day, you had to actually work hard and you know market it, and you had to figure out where to d- distribute stuff, and that's why you know people would buy those books. And, and by the way, that reminds me that I have like. I have come into a rather significant stamp collection from a couple of different people. I don't know why people feel the need to give me my stamps, but my late father, he gave me, he, you know, I have these stamp books of these old stamps, and I have absolutely no idea what the hell they're worth.
1: You had a stamp collection? <laughs> <laughs> stamp collection!
3: Ha <laughs> ha! all right why don't I just move on for our next bout we have Ted Grizzly the guy who did time for murder that he's doing time in jail that just happened to be dropped in the middle of a slam sports article on him he is teaming with Tiger Chung Lee making a dramatic return to greetings from Allentown coming off a match that he had against Hulk Hogan two weeks before I believe on All Star Wrestling on August 17th. It might have also aired on Championship Wrestling as well. Hogan and Chunger, they, they would work together quite a bit. You know, Back in 84, you had Tiger Chung Lee and Fuji teaming up against Hogan and Backlund. Hogan, I had that match there. I think he had another one on TV with Tiger Chung Lee. Maybe I'm just imagining that. The meeting of Mania versus Hulkamania. I remember being mad at that 85 match watching it because they pointed out it was a non-title match. Like, oh, yeah, we're all terrified that Tiger isn't going to do business. And, you know, he's going to he's gonna try and shoot the world title off Hogan on a TV match that they could just, you know, not air. They are taking on the makeshift team of Junkyard Dog and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And I think... With JYD, it's best that rather than putting him out for a singles match for three minutes that's utterly meaningless when the guy can't really move or whatever, although he's still fairly useful. As I've said many times, my dividing point with him is when Grab Them Cakes comes out is when JYD becomes kind of shiftless and lazy in the ring and, quite frankly, gets a little fat. But the teaming of these two guys particularly interesting to me it's almost like the superpowers of mid-atlantic and mid-south baby faces they like the mid superpowers or something like that both guys in reality from charlotte north carolina or at least build there in kayfabe or are from there in reality so it's a team that makes some sort of sense there and dragon starts out with tiger chung lee so a, a battle of two martial artists going on here and the dragon uh, he patented deep arm drags and it, when when you say that a move is patented or, or when you hear somebody say that let me assure you that ricky steamboat's arm drags are actually patented it is patent number b 2 Two zero one nine eight nine. That is the actual patent number for Ricky the Dragon Steamboat's arm drag. Gorilla calls the the Rolls Royce of professional wrestling. The WWF, the Rolls Royce of professional wrestling. Kind of interesting because they'd be giving away a Rolls Royce at the Wrestling Classic. Their first widespread attempt at pay per view. As I said, WrestleMania did have pay-per-view distribution but not very widespread at all except for my friend from the Bruins games apparently who doesn't give two craps about wrestling but he somehow saw Wrestlemania on pay-per-view and yes they gave one away to some Dorcas Malorcas at the Wrestling Classic. I am relieved that Chunger gets in a little bit of offense on Steamboat before he's whipped over into his corner for the tag to Ted Grizzly who is certainly... He's like a guy who auditioned to be one of the hillbillies alongside Hillbilly Jim, but lost out in the finals to the guy who became Cousin Jr., who is, who is—we're going to be introduced to Cousin Jr. later, so brace yourself and, you know, hold your applause, America, when we get to that. Grizzly, single leg takedown, and they go to work on the left leg of Ted Grizzly, JYD is in. As I said, a lot of tag matches for him because it meant he didn't have to do much, but you still get a reaction on the way to the ring. People still liked his dancing and whatnot. So, you know, he comes in, does a little. You know, he doesn't have to do much because you got Ricky Steamboat there and he can kind of take care of the action part of this. And he does finish it off with the crossbody off the top rope. Not, Not the best one that he's ever done, but it got the job done. And then after the match, second time on this show, they shouldn't book JYD and the Hillbillies on the same show for the simple fact that they both do dancing routines after the match. And to have, the, the first of all, back-to-back matches here where Babyface wins and then they do a dance in the ring. It, it, it's It's the same bit. Like, you shouldn't do, at least space it out over the course of the show. I mean, what is this, amateur hour here? Anyway, Ricky Steamboat comes back into the ring, and he dances a little bit with JYD, so it's kind of funny to see (laughs) Ricky Steamboat dancing in the ring. By the way, I don't think his wife, Bonnie, approved of such dancing, so he probably heard about it when he went home, but... Some little, little fun stuff there, and a win for Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, and Junkyard Dog, the Mid Atlantic and the Mid South superpowers. Mr. Fuji,
6: this week resplendently attired. This cane, something you carry with you all the time. That's uh, very heavy very metal, true. as they say.
4: Very true. Lot of American wrestlers received this, perhaps. Ah.
6: Where I've seen you stick that thing around, I don't think they're. All that receptive uh, to that particular gesture. <laughs> Something about sunshine, I forget it.
4: Let me tell you. magnificent one, Choto, Choto. What does Choto mean? Come here, boy, son. What's the matter with you? You speak
6: fluent Japanese. Oh! Speak a few words in
4: Japanese. For our... I'm very sorry. In America, I speak English.
0: <laughs>
3: I've seen a lot of those blooper things with Okerlund. Doing these interviews, with, you know, the local promos that they had to do. That they had to spend a lot of time Uh, And this is really kind of a golden era for this sort of thing. Because, you know, they would just kind of screw around. And here, Okerlund and Mr. Fuji. Fuji, not exactly known for his promo skills. But they're going out of here like two good jazz musicians. You know, they're riffing back and forth there. And Fuji's doing his best there. I mean, you know, there's certainly a cultural divide. And I I enjoyed that for what it was. It, It reminded me very much of... Mr. Miyagi kind of screwing with Daniel in Karate Kid.
6: Hey, what kind of belt do you
5: have?
4: Canvas. You like? <laughs> JC Penny, 398.
5: No, oh, no, I didn't mean a belt like that. I <laughs> meant...
4: Okinawa, belt me no need rope, hold up pants.
3: <laughs> Apparently, I must just have a thing for elderly Asian characters screwing with Americans in some way. So, Magnificent Morocco comes in. And he's wearing sunglasses and he's dressed very much like me. He's wearing a hoodie with the, you know, the pouch in the front. He's got a bandage on his forehead, so he must have been busted open in a match. He had the House Show program with Hulk Hogan right after the first WrestleMania, the MSG program. So he had he went the full rounds with Hogan there. And then he transitioned into the steamboat feud. So he's certainly relevant. He did disappear for much of 1984, which is probably necessary considering he had a lengthy reign as an IC champion and there was really not much left for him to do. So take a break for a while. He takes off the sunglasses as he starts to talk and his eyes are kind of wandering all over the place like he's expecting a narc to bust in any minute and arrest him for because uh, let me tell you something the, the way this promo goes it, it's not exactly an ad for recreational marijuana it's it might actually be something of a you know a, warning, a cautionary tale
4: <laughs> came here he was bright-eyed his face was clear he was a happy man he was seeking a higher plateau in life if you look at him now, his brow has weathered. His eyes are starting to glass over. He is getting very tired of oh, dealing with... Wait a minute, Don Morocco. This,
6: this man is not exactly sitting on a couch with an analyst you know, for four or five hours a week either.
4: He is suffering. <laughs> he has come after the biggest thing in professional wrestling.
3: And just watching Morocco here with the whole glassy-eyed thing and when he takes his sunglasses off, as I said, his eyes are kind of darting all over the place it almost seems like a thing where he's projecting his own faults in his own insecurities onto steamboat which i suppose makes him an effective heel i guess at the end of the day but yeah he is high as a friggin' kite in this and i don't care what you tell me he he definitely is so they go into another ad break here and this is where we get the good old southern advertisements here one for clayton mobile homes where you can get a mobile home for the low low price of ten thousand nine hundred dollars which must be a low price because they say limit two per customer now i don't know who was in the market for as many as three mobile homes at one time i don't know these you know modular units or whatever but hey you know ten thousand nine hundred in 1985 i mean i I don't, I'm not familiar with the real estate market in the greater Jackson, Tennessee area, but, uh, you know, whatever. And now we get an ad for another wrestling show, Memphis Wrestling running an ad for their upcoming show in Jackson.
1: Sunday, September the 1st, 8 p.m., Jackson Coliseum in Jackson, Tennessee. The parade of champions starts. Ten matches, five main events, four title shots, including a touring triple chance battle royal. You'll be seeing an international title defense with Phil Hickerson against Tommy Wright. Mid-America title belt is on the line with Coco Ware against Boda the Witch Doctor. The Southern Heavyweight Championship with Taurus Balba against Jerry the King Lawler. And a Southern Tag title match with the Fabs against the Sheepherders.
3: Oh, I'm totally down for going to that show, especially knowing what I know now. There's four Hall of Famers just advertised in that. You got Luke and Butch the Sheep Herders. You got Lawler. And you got Coco Ware. So four WWE Hall of Famers on there. The Fabs versus the Sheep Herders. I mean, that's obviously going to be a great match. Tyrus Bulba versus Lawler. I trust that Lawler will throw something together and make it manageable. By the way, Tyrus Bulba was actually the Southern Heavyweight Champion during one of... Many instances where Lawler would lose the title and then win it back shortly thereafter. I think he would win it back about five days after that show in Jackson. I think it might have been his 45th reign as the Southern Heavyweight Champion. I'm not entirely sure. There's no results for that show. It's uh, n- The Memphis results are not as easy to come by as they are uh, for, as they are for WCW, WWE and all that on the history of wwe.com I'll plug that website because it's just an invaluable resource for this kind of thing then we get an ad for a syndicate syndicated reruns and they would do this in the 80s they would show TV shows that like you don't remember the bar for syndication Seemed a lot lower Nowadays you got to run 100 episodes Before you can go into syndication You know, I think the big show This year going into syndication Was The Goldbergs That's a show that I enjoy From time to time It's not Bill Goldberg Otherwise it would just be Two and a half minute episodes And then it would just end And then it would be a Test pattern for 27 and a half minutes It's not that It's about a family Actually set in the mid 80s The show here in question is moving on which i had never heard of it was a show that aired from 1974 to 76 there's 44 episodes starred claude akins who definitely a creature of the 70s he would go on to greater fame playing sheriff lobo on the hit series (laughs) i call it a hit series bj and the bear uh, which uh, introduced greg evigan To America, who went on to be one of Stacey Keenan's two dads in My Two Dads. And eventually he would be spun off into The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo in 1980. I don't remember this moving on show at all. Apparently it was one of those deals where they would just drive around in their 18 wheeler and just have adventures along the way. So that was a thing that people were into in the mid 70s. You had all the convoy crap and the What's Your 20 Good Buddy. And, and ham radio, CB, whatever the hell it is. So that was a thing then. I mean, it, we were into some weird stuff. Uh, and by, by we, I mean America was into some weird stuff pre-internet. You know, don't think that like weirdness in society started now. I mean, the fact that everybody got into CB radio because of, you know, certain music in 1974 is a little strange. And then there's an ad for... The Department of Human Services, which was very confusing because there's a guy in a karate gi who does like a karate move and then he's like holding a kid for some... I I don't... I'm at a loss for words to really describe what is going on. But what I am not at a loss for words ever because I've done a series on him and I, I love him to the end. The greatest wrestler of all time, Terry Funk, is up next. He's taking on Keith diamond and I have to be reminded because I had I took the week off last week I did the best of show and recorded a little bit for that but I needed a break because I felt really burned out Wrestlemania season for whatever reason just does it to me Not that I'm watching too much, it's just that there's so much out there and there's so much to sort of consume and digest and everybody's weighing in with this and that kind of opinion or whatever, especially on like the modern product everything seems so polarizing or whatever that I just just get burned out really quick. And as it turns out, for SummerSlam, I guess I'm not going to be around because I'm going on a trip to Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my, my most random sports trip ever. So I guess I'll kind of be missing that scene. But I, I need to remind myself: return to Terry Funk whenever I feel burned out, because I've never not enjoyed anything he's ever done. Like, I, I will literally watch. Any, I, you know, I would watch Terry Funk like make an omelet because he would make that entertaining. And by, by the way, that, that makes me laugh thinking like Terry Funk being like the omelet guy at the at the Crown Plaza for breakfast I, I, he he would be like the best guy at that I think because he's just so amazing in everything he does and here he attacks Diamond before the bell and just tosses him out of the ring because he just gives he doesn't give a crap about anything that's going on he's doing like the Ali shuffle in the center of the ring because he's just relentlessly entertaining in everything he does and he hits him with lefts and rights when he comes back into the ring and then he throws him back outside and Funk he, he, does a, he does a very weird thing here but it also made me laugh he kind of goes into the corner to go back in but then he goes out the other corner kind of like the Sami Zayn DDT thing that he used to do except Funk just kind of does it so that he, he can stumble down the ring steps for whatever reason but it was kind of funny just the way he kind of felt it. and you could hear people in the crowd laughing unfortunately though on commentary you know they're still they're still digesting terry funk he's only been in about six weeks or so at this point uh, at least at the time that this was taped and i kind of disagree with the take on terry funk
0: terry funk an absolute wild man in that ring you never know what he's going to do
3: reminds me a lot of george the animal steel you never know what he's going to do either Look, nothing against Animal Steel. You know, he was what he was, and he was very good in his role, but he is not Terry Funk. Just because two guys are unpredictable, I mean, doesn't make them all that similar. Yeah, they would kind of do kooky things to both of them. So, I don't know, maybe I do agree with at least part of it. Diamond gets in some right hands, so because Funk does let the guy have a little bit of offense there. But Jesse, very interesting from him because when Ventura is in WCW he was obsessed with taped fists particularly when Barry Windham had his injury which was before Jesse got there but then Windham had the the you know the taped fist and all that and Jesse would constantly complain about it and he points out that Terry Funk has taped fists but he's got no complaints about it but Gorilla says that they might want to take a look at that and with Diamond like on the mat in the center of the ring Funk then hits both ropes like he's the rock doing the people's elbow in 1998 he doesn't do the thing with the arms but he hits both ropes and then he misses an elbow so I'm going to call this the Funkers elbow and then Diamond when he gets up two body slams on Funk so he's getting in some decent offense here but then he is sent into the ropes and he is caught in the Terry Funk sleeper hold it is put out in very short order and Terry Funk's post-match gimmick of course was to brand guys with the symbol of the double cross ranch the double crosses where you don't really get a good view of it here I mean the video quality isn't all that great and as you're supposed to do when you put a guy out with the sleeper you're supposed to wake him up you know rub the shoulders or whatever and Terry does do that and then he just puts the boots to him afterwards it's just amazing and delightful in all this I know that Jimmy Hart is there he's not doing a whole lot in the managerial capacity because Terry Funk really doesn't need a manager it's just more of a formality of WWF culture of we're going to put a manager with you and Jimmy Hart makes the most sense for you we think and it's another reason why i would have voted jimmy hart as my kayfabe manager. of the year he got terry funk i mean that's that's enough for me and he also had hammer valentine during the ic title reign so you know kind of just returning to that but terry funk he is he is truly the goat because anything that you need it he can do he can do the hardcore match he can do a scientific match he could do a goofball comedy spot he can do high spots low spots whatever the hell you want he'll even make you an omelet apparently is what i'm told he can he makes a hell of a denver omelet i i, I believe and, and who am i to doubt terry Funk's omelet making abilities i think but just just please when i get sick of wrestling just remind me to watch Terry Funk matches. You know my friend Bob Sacramento? I thought he was Kramer's friend. Well, he called last night
6: about 3 a.m. and we got to talking. He sells Russian hats down at Battery Park. Forty bucks.
0: Forty bucks? Are they sable?
3: No, but the difference is negligible. <laughs> We're in the Body Shop now. Jesse Ventura's talk show segment that, quite honestly, historically, does not get a lot of play know compared with say a Piper's pit or whatever it's generally okay because Ventura is a good host here he has the foreign legion Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik along with Freddie Blassie Volkov wearing that damn Russian hat first of all it's August I know you're taping this show in Canada but you don't need that hat I mean it's not that cold it's even summer in Canada at that time of year although on Ontario during those months from June to August since that seems to be when I usually would go there for my baseball or whatever it looks like I'm not going to Toronto for baseball this year because I already went for hockey and I really can't make two trips there also going up there for an Orioles Blue Jays series would just be a fool's errand at this point because I don't even know what the hell I'd be doing that so yeah why are you wearing the sable hat in Canada in August I don't quite understand it maybe it's Something on Blassie's part. Because Blassie, this, we're nearing the end. This is the start of the final year of his managerial career. And it is kind of sad considering, you know, the heights he had been at at one point. It, it's like watching an athlete nearing age 40 just just kind of riding into the sunset and maybe just well past their peak. Kind of like when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had that last year with the Lakers. Sure, they made the finals and all that, but Kareem had like the shaved head and the goggles. It made him look like an alien, as Bill Simmons has always said. And if you go back to the title change where they lost to the U.S. Express about a month and a half earlier, it's just a really weird match and finish that runs about... Five minutes where there's a camel clutch and Wyndham comes into the ring breaks it up okay that's fine then they go into a vertical suplex by Sheik which is then turned into a small package by Rotundo but then for some reason the referee is distracted from the chaos before Volkov comes into the ring because he's talking to Wyndham. Volkov turns it around the small package And then he's escorted out. Wyndham comes in, and he turns the small package back around. And then the referee, kind of with a fast three count, very, very clunky sort of finish there. I, I I don't know if you're protecting the foreign legion or whatever. And Ventura says that they've had a hard time getting rematches. But then again, we just learned earlier in the show that they've already lost the titles, the U.S. Express, to the Dream Team. So now they're going to even have a harder time because I don't think they're going to be booking any Dream Team versus Sheik and Volkov matches. So I I don't know what's going on. And it always makes me think watching this about taking the titles off the U.S. Express seems a little bit sudden based on it's only been six weeks since they had won the titles on television. Was it that Wyndham asked for time off or announced he was leaving? Well, if he announced he was leaving, they probably would have not brought him back from the injury angle. They just would have wrote him off completely. I I don't I don't get it. It it, it is a little strange. You, you could have just done you know a title. Well, I guess maybe that's a transitional champion sort of deal to get it over to Valentine because now you're going to have the hammer teaching Beefcake how to work, as I had mentioned earlier, as he claimed in that 1985 timeline. This is not exactly the greatest episode of the Body Shop ever. Nobody really says anything. Sheik says something and then, then he just starts lifting weights because the set of the show had some weightlifting equipment around. Thankfully, Dino Bravo is not there to come out and bore us with a eighteen minute uh you know weightlifting exhibition or whatever where he preens for the crowd for three minutes in between attempts. It is it's just kind of strange. You know, you, you have two guys who aren't exactly natural talkers and then Blassie At the end of his career, Kareem in 89 is what Blassie is here. And I'll I'll reiterate, I do think that the body shop was generally better than this, usually.
1: Now on sale at your local newsstand, the new World Wrestling Federation magazine. Andre the Giant teams up with the Goonies. Captain Louis Albano becomes a wise guy. Stars of the World Wrestling Federation in cartoon form. The striking similarity of Bobby the Brain Heenan and a real live
4: weasel.
3: I've mentioned before how I wish I could find my old... Magazines like the WWF magazine or any of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated stuff that I had from the late 80s or early 90s. I wouldn't go back as far as 85, obviously. I would love to have this issue. I hear Andre with the Goonies. It made me think immediately that Andre must have had an eating contest against Chunk or something like that. But no, it was actually that Andre was in the video for Goonies Are Good Enough, the Cyndi Lauper song, which apparently wasn't the most pleasant experience for Lauper because the director, who is Richard Donner, the director of the Goonies, the movie, they, they had this extra thing. It was a 12-minute, almost like a, a short or whatever, and Andre shows up at the end when he is summoned via smoke by Cindy Lauper. And he uh, fights off the bad guys. Volkov, Sheik, Piper is there, and Piper seemingly breaks character by yelling out, "Spielberg, the video wasn't supposed to end like this." It's kind of a strange thing there. Also, what Andre is wearing is really kind of weird, like this puffy thing, like around, and he he looks so huge up top. And Lou Albano becomes a wise guy. It makes me think Lou Albano in Goodfellas, let's say, what character is he most like? And to me, it's obvious. It's that Lou Albano is Billy Bats because he's a made man, because Vince Sr. insisted that the guys from his era be kept around, you know, as reasonable or whatever and albano kept staying and staying but apparently pain in the ass to vince jr behind the scenes so you can just picture him just giving vince jr a hard time telling him to go get his fucking shine box
6: hey billy how are you get over here i haven't seen you in six fucking years jesus christ almighty you look terrific are you watch Watch this this suit watch this suit you little frick yeah hey i know you're my life all right, good. we go getting too big on me Just now. Just
1: don't go busting my balls, Billy, okay? Hey,
6: Tommy, if I was going to break your balls, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box.
1: <laughs> no more shines,
6: Billy. What? I said no more shines. Maybe you didn't hear about it. You've been away a long time. They didn't go up there and tell you. Uh, I don't shine shoes anymore. Now go home and get your fucking shine box.
3: I can absolutely picture that scene between Captain Lou Albano and Vince McMahon in some way, except... Instead of getting whacked, Captain Lou met a much worse fate later on in that he went to the UWF and worked for Herb Abrams. <laughs> Whatever. And there's also a mention of the Hulk Hogan cartoon in the WWF magazine. and I've actually never watched that, mainly because I just really don't care about it that much. because it's one of those things where Moolah, you know, inserted herself into it when originally it was going to be a vehicle for a women's wrestler mad Max scene. but enough about mula i've done enough shitting on mula but uh you know actually there really is never enough uh, bad-mouthing her another ad for roll aids but the guy pronounces it weird he calls it roll aids instead like like how my mother used to uh, pronounce oj simpson's name as oj Sometimes, and it would amuse me greatly, add for bug away, which is an ultrasonic solution to keep bugs and other pests away. And I can tell you that that sort of thing actually works because occasionally up here, I wouldn't say where I live is necessarily rural, but it's quiet. And, you know, you can have field mice around. And I've never had mice in my house, thank God. But I do have an ultrasonic thing in my bathroom which is you know faces towards the backyard it it actually works because there were some mice in the back of the house about four years ago and i have not seen them since i started using that ultrasonic thing and luckily it does not screw up my cat any more than she is ordinarily screwed up now for a match that actually happened on television and in fact i wrote in my notes holy shit this it is george wells teaming up with lanny poffo newly arrived in the world wrestling federation alongside his brother the macho man randy savage and they are taking on (laughs) the team of steve lombardi and jerry adams the brooklyn bronx connection As both of these guys are from New York City. This is not the Jerry Adams from the IRA in Ireland and all that sort of business. I think I've mentioned on the podcast that I once shook hands with that Jerry Adams. (laughs) One of the weirdest things ever, especially because my congressman is taking us around on a school trip. He introduces us to Jerry Adams and announces that this he's gonna win the Nobel Peace Prize. It's like Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize for, you know, considering all he's done. But then again, they gave it to Yasser Arafat, so I guess anything was possible at that point. So, yes, this did happen on TV, and the tag division was a little weird around this time. They were trying a different things with George Wells. Earlier in 85, Wells had been teaming with Bret Hart and was one of the first regular partners of Bret after he had come in. And then Brett turned on him. And that was kind of how he became a heel on television. At pafo they, they're still trying to find their way, something to do with him. There's no poetry or anything like that at this time. Jerry Adams, yeah, he, he would appear on WWF television as an enhancement. 0-15 on Cage Match. I'm sure there's more to the record than that. He's also a guy who kind of looks like a reject from Archie Bunker's place. Maybe one of the guys hanging out in the bar or whatever. I know he's from the Bronx and not from Queens, but I could easily just relocate him to Queens and just do it that way. And I'll, I'll, Seeing this reminds me of the all-jobber episode of Tuesday Night Titans that they had done in May of 85. That's one that I really need to get to because I marked that one early on when I started doing this podcast. and I, I should cycle back to that at some point, although maybe not do another show on 85 this quickly. But, uh, you know, I'm talking about how it, it seems a little weird the way the tag division is this time, late summer of 85. Gorilla, thankfully... He, I'm glad. He, he takes an opportunity to kind of explain what's going on here.
0: You know, we, we've seen of late, Jess, in the weeks that have gone by, so many different pairs of teams, different combinations, guys all striving because so much wealth involved in being the tag team champions of the world.
3: That was all code for, we're throwing shit against the wall, Jess, and we're going to see what sticks. That's pretty much what he's saying there. Lombardi gets a little bit of offense on a leap and Lanny slam out of the gate and then throws him to the outside. Just seeing this match and seeing these four guys in the same match together is a little weird. And I am kind of expecting something to happen in terms of maybe that manager of the year thing, somebody else will cycle in and make their case. And thankfully, Bobby Heenan joins the broadcast booth. He had not been broadcasting with Monsoon at this point, so this is pre-any of their experiences together. And he joins the telecast. He does a little bit better speech on his own behalf than Captain Lou had done earlier.
0: You know, there's a lot of
6: talk going on by a lot of people, the Albanos, the Blassies, and the rest of them, why they think they should be Manager of the Year. Well, I could stand out here for 10 hours and tell you my credentials. I could stand out here for 10 weeks and show you my credentials. You know it. The people here know it. By uh, the name Bobby the Brain and I am a proven commodity in professional wrestling. And everybody I manage has gone nowhere but the top. And I've made... I've taken people from nothing and made them rich, wealthy men and stars. And all you've got to do is check my record. And if you don't believe I'm right, all you got to do
3: is ask me. It's interesting that Heenan talks about taking a guy from nothing and making stars out of people. When Lombardi is in the ring and they would attempt that to not great fanfare in early 1989 when he adopted the Brooklyn Brawler persona. But even more interesting than that, as this is going on, Lanny Poffo does a Pascato onto Steve Lombardi which goes completely unmentioned, which is a tremendous high spot for 1985 WWF. It's just really, really strange. It just goes unremarked upon. And of course, something is screwed up. Everything with Lanny Poffo, something has to be screwed up. Either his hair has to be weird. Lord Al has to be calling him supple. Something is screwy with that. And it, in this case, it was Jerry Adams was also on the outside. And Poffo was like, signaling for him to move away so that he could do his move onto Lombardi and he did kind of miss he kind of landed on his feet and just kind of you know fell in to Lombardi really just kind of an odd sequence there where, where he's just kind of audibly calling the spot and this match actually wraps up in pretty short order Wells former football player in the CFL in the 70s and I was shocked to learn because Wells Mentioned the only time you really ever see him on a big stage, you know, outside of like primetime wrestling or whatever, is at WrestleMania 2, foaming at the mouth after losing to Jake the Snake. He had been wrestling since the mid 70s and was kind of a star in the San Francisco region in the late 70s. And he was he was a good player in the CFL, an all star a couple of times. They have a weird all star thing where they would do Eastern All Stars and Western All Stars, which is strange because it was only an eight team league, so there's only four teams on each side. So, whatever. This is all background fodder, really, for Heenan's uh, <laughs> Heenan's little speech. To it. And he wins it with the shoulder block on Adams and the one, two, three. So I figure we might as well just move on because there's no real plans for any of these guys except for the fact that afterwards guerrilla monsoon you know customary i guess for the team picking up a win we're going to be seeing more from them he says and then i look it up and i see that i found nothing that said that they ever tagged on tv again so there you have it something is always off with lanny puffo
0: hi my name is tito santana the summer season coming around people like to swim and swim is very important for your physical conditioning But the most important thing, swim with a friend. Never swim alone. Be careful.
3: All right, I guess that's sound advice. I mean, you should not swim alone. They do have the signs up when you go to the hotel pool. You know, no lifeguard on duty. Have somebody there with you. But it's just really strange and out of place on a wrestling program. I am glad that the babyface is giving the PSA this time. I had mentioned many episodes ago about Bobby Heenan doing an anti-drunk driving PSA that might have actually inadvertently encouraged drunk driving because of Heenan being the one delivering the message. I don't know what I like best about that. It might, Maybe it's the guy coughing in the background that you can hear faintly halfway through that. Or that Tito is saying that summer is coming around as this is airing in late August. I don't know, just seems a little strange. Then there is an ad for some kind of jewelry thing and they're talking about a Scandinavian snowball ring, which to me when I heard that it hit my ear. It sounds like a sex move. The oh, I hit her with the uh, Scandinavian snowball ring and oh yeah, yeah, whatever whatever. Then the next commercial starts with Bob greasy Former quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, who then became a broadcaster after his career father, to NFL quarterback Brian Greasy. But it's really weird when you see this ad because they show a Miami Dolphins quarterback throwing a touchdown pass, so you think it's Bob Greasy because that's where he spent his career. But it's actually Dan Marino throwing a touchdown pass to Mark Duper. Marino had thrown 48 touchdown passes in the 1984 season, so he's kind of one of the biggest stars in the NFL. Coming up, He held that record for 23 years, I think it was, till Tom Brady broke it in the 2007 season. But this is an ad for the Sporting News, which... As a publication, my dad was subscribed to for years and years, and then I was probably up through about 2006, 2007. I always liked the sporting news a little bit better than Sports Illustrated. It was known as the Bible of baseball back in the day because before you had websites like BaseballReference.com, finding information was mostly you had to go to the baseball encyclopedia and look up guys individually and flip through the thousand pages or whatever. Sporting News had all the box scores from every game in the previous week. This stuff was not so readily available, obviously. <laughs> there was less of a need for that once the internet came around. But the Sporting News, very good publication back in the day.
0: Elizabeth what the Macho Man has chosen as his manager above guys like Keenan and Hart and Blassie and Valiant. I wonder if Elizabeth knows
4: anything about wrestling.
3: What? I'm not sure if that's exactly how the footage was when it originally aired, but it is strange to see Savage kind of at the ring and not hearing his usual pomp and circumstance music with Elizabeth coming out in front of him. And she had only been introduced a week earlier on the championship wrestling show after a thing that they did with Bam Bam Bigelow later on. Although he spurned all the heel managers and went with babyface Oliver Humperdinck and Savage ended up doing the same thing in introducing Elizabeth and what people seem to remember is Bruno saying, oh, she looks like a movie star well, that is actually true because she looked particularly resplendent and Liz, early on is a little bit different than what you might remember I went over this in more detail back episode 17 where she gets on the microphone and publicly challenges Hulk Hogan on her man's behalf and that was kind of interesting to see but here there's a lot more smiling and she doesn't look completely terrified at all times which is kind of how Elizabeth would be later on particularly when Savage was a heel and people were cheering Elizabeth like during the George Steele days very early on I get the distinct impression that Elizabeth was set up to be a character like that out of Dynasty or Dallas maybe not necessarily overtly cheating to win but maybe she would trip a guy up every now and then something more like I don't know a, a baby doll in a JCP or something like that maybe maybe more physical involvement but that would change and, and to be honest you, you can't really argue with what they went with it would have driven Savage insane now if you uh, remove Elizabeth from the equation you say to Savage alright we're going to bring you in but this is the WWF and you're going to be a heel so you have to have a manager which of the managers would have been the best choice for him would it have been Jimmy Hart since they're familiar with each other from Memphis Heenan I don't think Johnny V is a fit Fuji certainly isn't a fit either the correct answer is actually a reincarnated back from the dead Grand Wizard because that That pairing would have been absolutely perfect. But since Wizard passed in 83, I guess you've probably got to go with Heenan on that one. Uh, Especially since I gave my speech earlier in the show about Blassie being in the twilight of his career. There's not much overlap between these two guys, Randy Savage and Rick McGraw. As I said, McGraw would pass away in a couple of months at the beginning of November and Savage had just come in. It Gorilla his commentary on the whole dynamic with Savage and Liz is that Savage is calling all the shots. So maybe Gorilla was a little bit more in tune with what was going on there. And McGraw is not exactly a pure jobber. He's a guy who would put up a fight. As I said, the the Rick McGraw chair is a place of honor, you know, where yeah, you're gonna lose on television, but you're gonna be on TV a lot. And you're going to put up a better fight than just about anybody had before. And he had occupied that seat for a good four or five years by this point. He has a shoulder block to start up. And then Savage takes a little bit of control. Then McGraw ends up outside. And Jesse is kind of ogling Elizabeth, which is really strange to sort of hear. Because it's not something that you would here going forward. Well, I'll tell you, after looking at Elizabeth, I might be, I might have been
0: forced to take her over Heenan and Blassie and them, too. Uh, are you saying you haven't been watching the match, Jess?
4: You've been watching Elizabeth? I'm, I'm doing what I'm out here to do, the color commentator. Oh, okay.
3: <laughs> Good stuff there. Savage gets sent to the buckle after McGraw sort of blocks it. He puts his foot up. And then a monkey flip out of the corner. But then McGraw misses the SD Jones Memorial Charge and gets hit with a back elbow and he ends up on the outside Elizabeth is kind of clapping but with a little bit more vigor than say Vanna White when they spin the wheel on Wheel of Fortune of course she's been there now three decades I mean she really doesn't give a rat's ass if they go bankrupt or lose a turn or anything like that top rope for Savage double axe to the outside and this is so revolutionary I mean you see so many Randy Savage matches in WWF in the 80s and into the 90s. He ends up number one in the greatest WWE wrestler ever project because I don't think there's any real negatives to what he's doing. Although personally, I think Bruno should have been number one. This double axe handle to the outside was something that you weren't seeing other guys do. It is a true high spot because everybody, you can see the crowd, everybody is up on their feet when he goes to the top rope. It's pretty amazing to see. It also should be pointed out that there are no mats on the outside of the ring. So when he comes down, he's taking a real risk that, you know, if he lands wrong, he's going to screw himself up badly. But then Savage makes a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran. No, he doesn't put his head down. Instead, he does the side headlock move to ram the top of the guy's head into the ring post, which 150% of the time, the guy gets pushed off and ends up into the ring post by himself. (laughs) So that happens once again here. Suplex back into the ring gets a two count that is actually Savage suplexing McGraw back in so he was none the worse for wear outside even though Savage hit the ring post Savage then comes off the top again for a double axe this time inside the ring and he gets caught in the gut by McGraw and then a sunset flip is the hope spot for McGraw but that only gets two and McGraw actually goes up top and it seems like one of those things where I don't remember Rick McGraw doing a lot of top rope moves. So I'm like, I, I, I feel like this is very low percentage for him. Kind of like Blake Bortles throwing a pass 50 yards downfield. I really feel like it's not going to work. And sure enough, he meets the knees of the Macho Man on the way down. And that sets him up. He's laying in the center of the ring for the big elbow, which the crowd is not conditioned for yet because Savage stands on that top rope. For quite a while, with his arms in the air and the famous pose, but you don't see the flash bulbs the way you would later on. I don't think people were conditioned to like this is a great photo opportunity to see Savage doing the big elbow, and he picks up the one, two, three there. And he's announced as the winner, but he's got something to say, and I don't know if it was the first time this phrase was said on WWF television. Probably not. But it's just interesting in the way he interrupted and the way he refers to Liz.
0: Macho Madness! What about it, baby? Macho Madness! Macho Madness, he says. Elizabeth is Macho Madness.
3: It's a phrase that endures on t-shirts to this day, alongside other ones like Hulkamania, Warrior Wildness, Arriba Durchey. For Tito Santana, as put by the ultimate warrior at Survivor Series 1990. I don't know if it was the first time he ever said it on television, but it's so early on in his run. To me, it might as well be.
1: Well, life on the farm kind of laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me, can't hack. It's early to rise, early in a sack. I thank God I'm a country boy. Well, a simple kind of life never did me no harm Raising me a family and working on the farm the Days are all filled with an easy country charm Thank God I'm a country boy
3: The dilution of Hillbilly Jim continues unabated as they have promo time with Gene Oakland and it's Jim with Uncle Elmer and they have a surprise and they bring in their cousin Cousin Junior, in this case This would be Lanny Keene, who sharp-eyed observers of 1984 WWF television know he was one of the regular jobbers particularly early in the year so it's kind of interesting what is he going to do with this promo time he comes in and he shakes Oakland's hand but he does that Donald Trump thing where he shakes it like a little bit too long and a little bit too vigorously where it's starting to make everybody a little bit uncomfortable with the whole thing to, so to, you know, make us all relax here, Hillbilly Jim spins a yarn about skinning live fish, which I thought was a little strange. Kind, of, kind of, Probably the most heelish thing Hillbilly Jim ever did is skinning live fish, as Okerlund points out to him. So we do get to hear from Cousin Junior, a man who is so poor in the ring that on the Place to Be podcast, their Worst Wrestler of the Show Award is so named for cousin jr or the worst worker or however you want to put it so what <laughs> what does he do with his time here well you know if i had a chance to talk on wwf television you know what i would talk about hat pins
6: hey that's a very colorful hat you've got there well thank you well i'll tell you that is uh is there any chance that our cameraman can get a are these medals from any kind of uh, competition, any kind of an event? Well, I know, Were you sir, in just, the
4: Olympics? Well, I know, sir. Just wherever I go, people usually just give me old hat pins. I stick them on there.
6: Well, I think except, they very good. Except
4: this here, feather here. I had to chase old, had to chase old peacock about two or three miles. Can't oh. it. Well,
6: I but swear, I finally sir, caught him. I swear that's a pheasant feather, hey, but go right Let me tell right you it. something else
4: about yes. this boy. This boy right here can eat the biggest watermelon Ooh. in Kentucky.
3: Holy shit, enough Uncle Elmer already. They throw it to the ad break. And there's a show coming up on this channel that will be a season preview for the University of Tennessee Volunteers football season. And in 1985 is actually one of the more memorable Tennessee teams I don't know if there's anybody listening to this show who would remember that team and how beloved they were in the state of Tennessee but they went 9-1-2 and that year yes uh, ties were fairly commonplace in college football I remember one year I think Michigan went 8-0-4 I think it was the 92 season but that year Tennessee won the SEC championship This was before there was ever a conference championship game, so it was all regular season. And as the SEC champion, you got an automatic berth in the Sugar Bowl where Tennessee defeated number two Miami by a score of 35-7. This is Miami's heyday back then with Jimmy Johnson as the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes an ad for the black sheep squadron starring robert conrad so <laughs> what could what could possibly be bad about that there is a job search ad where they actually read off some of the jobs that they're looking to to fill positions available include special ed teacher you got to have 2 years of experience for that termite services sales position, a cable TV lineman, this is not a lineman, like football lineman, like one of the guys who works on the lines, and a carpenter, so I'm sure you could, <laughs> I'm sure those positions have been filled by now promotional consideration from Lord Al Hayes is provided by Edge Shave Gel Persona Razors and Rick Springfield's album Tao which had actually come out, I think, eight or nine months before this. It's kind of weird that they were promoting an album, but the WWF was very much involved with Rick Springfield as they're ramping up to the wrestling album that would be released in November. For more on that, again, go back to episode 17, because that was much closer to the time that that was actually released. And finally, promotional consideration for Isuzu. You know, the first Japanese car maker is kind of their gimmick at that time. And Gorilla and Jesse close out the show as Jesse ponders his future and says that maybe I should check with Liz and see if the lovely Elizabeth will become my manager for whatever is left of his career. Not too many appearances left. In Jesse because his body just would not cooperate despite the fact that every year at Wrestlemania he would threaten to come out of retirement to take down Hulk Hogan and that is how they wrap on WWF All-Star Wrestling August 31st, 1985 No YouTube comment theater this week part because there's only two comments they're both from the same guy and they both just say this match takes place at this time stamp which isn't particularly interesting to talk about and anyway this show has run longer than I had anticipated after the one week off I thought I'd ease myself back in but I'm just glad I got through this entire show without any mood swings based on how the Boston Bruins Toronto Maple Leafs series ended now it will have ended by the time this show is released I don't know yet as I record this how it's going to end so (laughs) do be on the lookout for that because that'll be a strong indicator of my mood going forward my ability to internalize every loss by my hockey team and to take it 100% personally is really something to behold so why don't we just move on I'll tell you next week's show episode 63 which will be something of a milestone for me 63 seems like a weird number but it was in fact one of my goals when i started podcasting and i will explain why on next week's show and during that i will be taking a look for the first time at the american wrestling association with great trepidation I am going to dive in and I've looked at a number of different episodes and eras of the AWA, the 70s, the very early 80s when Hogan is running around in there, you know, 81 through 83, also looked at 84 from after Hogan left, but Bobby Heenan still being there, then you have 1989 when things are starting to go downhill, Larry Zabisco becomes the world champion and the aftermath of Super Clash 2 in 1987. But I'm kind of putting all those to the side because I found a different show to do that really piqued my interest based on when it was and who was actually on that show. This is AWA All-Star Wrestling from April 6th, 1986. And this is actually pulled from New York television. I talked about, you know, this is from Tennessee, this episode that I did at the AWA. Still very strong television distribution at that time in 86, but things were starting to get a little creaky for them. But many names on this show that any wrestling fan would know were actually going to see Larry Zabisco, who I obviously was a big part of last week's Best Of show. There's also kind of a weird working with the NWA on this episode of AWA All-Star Wrestling because a lot of NWA stars kind of show up and do promos for their own upcoming shows like Arn Anderson and the Road Warriors. Of course, the Road Warriors were in the AWA in the years before this. But here's a sampling of who else you're going to see on that show. You're going to see an interview with young Leon White. Yes, Vader makes an appearance at the AWA in 1986. Sergeant Slaughter, who was then the AWA America's champion, a secondary belt. The tag team champions, Kurt Henning and Big Scott Hall, are in action in a non-title bout. And so much more, Jerry Blackwell, one of the biggest baby faces of the AWA in the mid-1980s. And Buddy Rose, Doug Summers, and Sherry Martell, their valet. Yes, sensational Sherry will be there. And Nick Bockwinkle will stop by for a promo as well. And oh yeah, there's a little thing coming up shortly after that called the Wrestle Rock 86 show and the Wrestle Rock Rumble Rap. And you'll be sure to know that I'm going to break that down from soup to nuts because... I mean, a lot A lot of people know exactly what that is, but I, I want to do a ranking of the best rappers in the AWA from that. Talk about how maybe it's inappropriate for the whitest promotion in the history of pro wrestling to be co-opting what is generally an African-American genre and just how awkward it is and maybe the cultural reasons why that happened. But I'll get into that more next week. So AWA All-Star Wrestling, April 6th. 1986 coming next week. So do tune in then for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.
2: But the most important thing, swim with a friend. Never swim alone. Be careful.